You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on the book, The Quest for Sustainable Business, An Epic Journey in Search of Corporate Responsibility. Emergence and Convergence, Birth of a New Capitalism. Stakeholders are the enemy. The first time I visited the United States was in 1994, while I was still a strategy analyst for Capgemini. I have returned numerous times, mostly on work-related trips, to conduct a KPMG sustainability audit, to attend the Global Mind Change Forum of the World Business Academy, as part of my Cambridge University research for the top 50 sustainability books, and as part of my CSR Quest World Tour, where I was generously hosted by Josetta McLaughlin of Roosevelt University in Chicago, and also lectured to MBAs at Presidio Graduate School in San Francisco. As you can imagine, there is a lot to say, so I have split my American insights into two episodes. To begin with, I touch on some of my own experiences and reflections and highlight some findings from the excellent chapter by Audrey Jones in the World Guide to CSR. Then I talk about my encounters with great sustainability luminaries like Amory Lovins, Herman Daly, Jeffrey Sachs, Joseph Stiglitz, and Stuart Hart. Let me begin with some anecdotes. When I visited the United States as part of a safety, health, and environmental governance audit on a chemical company, I was still director of sustainability services at KPMG, and we visited several facilities in five countries, South Africa, Germany, Netherlands, Italy, and the United States. One of the things we always asked was for the company's records of legal non-compliances, including fines and penalties. This was a relatively straightforward matter in all the countries but one, the United States. First, they had not one but a few thousand non-compliances, which probably says more about the country's onerous legal requirements than the company's negligence. For instance, when we asked to see their air pollution permit documentation, they pointed to an entire bookshelf of lever arch files. Second, they did not know what liability these non-compliances represented because they were in constant negotiation with the government over the exact settlement of these amounts. This was apparently allowed under the federal sentencing guidelines, which gives some flexibility to companies on legal sanctions if they can demonstrate due diligence, for example by having an environmental management system in place or conducting safety risk assessments. We were not happy, but conceded the point and tried a different tack, asking them to show us their board meeting minutes for the past 12 months. We wanted to check the extent to which sustainability issues were being discussed at a top management level. Imagine our surprise when we were told that they do not keep board minutes for fear that the minutes might be leaked to the public and so expose them to the risk of being sued. At this point, I'm sure our heads were in our hands. So we tried again, inquiring whether they 
might mitigate against that sort of public risk through stakeholder engagement. They seemed a little confused by what we meant by stakeholder. You know, interested and affected parties, the community, NGOs, I explained helpfully. Ah yes, the managing director understood perfectly now and did not hesitate with his reply, spoken between gritted teeth, saying, NGOs are not stakeholders, they are the enemy. It would be funny if it was not true. Of course, I am in no way implying that this company is indicative of the state of sustainable business practice throughout America. Many of the finest sustainable business institutions and best case studies are American. One group that particularly inspired me in the early part of my career was the World Business Academy, founded by the futures researcher Willis Harmon with the aim of achieving a global mind shift by raising the consciousness of business. In fact, I ended up establishing a South African chapter for the organization, along with a chapter for the equally pioneering Institute for Ecological Economics. Regulation-enabled CSR The result of the tireless work of these and many other organizations is that there is a strong tradition of CSR and sustainable business in America today, albeit within a tough market environment. Audra Jones, America's director for the International Business Leaders Forum, explores this in her chapter in The World Guide to CSR, She argues that although CSR evolved in the first part of the 20th century, led by a few visionary leaders like Rockefeller, Carnegie, Ford, Hewlett and Packard, the growth of American CSR as a business imperative is due to regulation. Beginning in the late 1960s and early 1970s, the U.S. government established regulatory agencies that shaped much of the CSR benchmarks guiding business operations. For example, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or Consumer Product Safety Commission, and the Environmental Protection Agency, all created standards and legislation for responsible corporate business practices, which have become thresholds for good commercial behavior. Recent examples of industry-specific and sector-wide regulation include the Community Reinvestment Act in the banking sector, the Clean Air Act, and after Enron's collapse, the Public Company Accounting Reform and Investor Protection Act. Corporate philanthropy also accelerated due to regulation. The formalized efforts of philanthropy in the early part of the 20th century by the Rockefellers and Carnegies fostered the first regulatory response to CSR in the form of tax breaks to corporations making charitable contributions to non-profit organizations. Without that incentive, many corporations would not have engaged in philanthropy. This remains true in parts of developing countries where no such tax incentive exists. Jones believes that in the last 20 years there's been a shift in CSR from regulatory compliance towards harnessing the potential for sustainable business to contribute to reputation, public policy and core business practices. 
This evolution has been encouraged by pressures on business from new stakeholders, such as institutional investors creating socially responsible investment funds. The Dow Jones Sustainability Indexes were launched in 1999 as the first global indexes tracking the financial performance of the leading sustainability-driven companies worldwide. In the 1990s, many of the U.S. corporations also began participating in voluntary principles such as the Global Reporting Initiative. More recently, consumers have put expectations on business to integrate CSR into the core, and there's been increased pressure on defining the value of corporate investment in sustainable business. I've written and talked extensively in my other books about many of these US-based initiatives, as well as the sustainable business case studies that have instructed and inspired us over the years, from the pioneering voices of Rockefeller, Carnegie, Rachel Carson, and Ralph Nader, to the seminal academic work of Archie Carroll, Ed Freeman, Stuart Hart, and C.K. Prahalad. I've profiled the corporate fiascos of Exxon, Enron, McDonald's, and Nike, and business visionaries like Ben and Jerry's, Patagonia, Interface, and Seventh Generation. Rather than repeat these here, for those who are interested in this historical perspective, I recommend two of my books in particular, Landmarks for Sustainability and The Age of Responsibility. Capitalism at the Crossroads For the rest of this episode, I want to share some insights from the American interviews I conducted for the top 50 sustainability books, beginning with Stuart Hart, who perfectly captures the U.S. entrepreneurial spirit in his thinking on sustainable business. Reflecting on his 30-year journey, he recalls that his Beyond Greening article in the Harvard Business Review in 1997 was really the turning point. By the time his Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid piece with C.K. Prahalad came out in Strategy and Business in 2002, he had concluded in his typically understated way that there's a potential for some impact. Hart's thinking is synthesized in his book Capitalism at the Crossroads, and I was curious to know why he states his case in terms of capitalism rather than at the level of sustainable business. If you look at how capitalism evolved in the 19th century, he explained, it evolved in a very different direction than imagined by the progenitors of the concept, the classical economists in the 18th century. Karl Polanyi in The Great Transformation, has referred to it as the disembedding of the economy. It produced a whole new organizational form called the large corporation, which solved a lot of problems and a lot of good came from that, but we haven't resolved the dark side of 19th century industrial capitalism. I'm absolutely convinced, he continued, that we're in the midst of the next transformation, just like capitalism transformed in a fundamental way between 1850 and 1890. Only it's from the 19th century form of industrial capitalism to a sustainable form of capitalism that actually has the potential to solve social and environmental problems, to create wealth for everyone in the world, and to take us more quickly to the next generation 
of potentially clean and sustainable technology. Interestingly, unlike many other authors that have written on capitalism, like Naomi Klein, Hart focuses on the positive role that business can play. I asked him if that is justified. I'm a pragmatist, he replied, in the sense that I look around and I try to assess where the leverage points for change to occur most rapidly are. We're headed rapidly for the cliff, so to speak, but there is also great potential to change quickly. What makes the world of commerce interesting in my mind is its ability to creatively destroy itself, to fall back on Joseph Schumpeter's term. We have a mechanism through which this change could unfold at the rate that it needs to in order to move us towards a sustainable world before it's too late. That all sounds good, but aren't big corporations locked into incremental change? Schumpeter wasn't terribly optimistic about incumbent corporations' ability to engage in creative destruction, conceded Hart. But what he bet on was the capitalist system, small entrants, new firms that would come in and creatively destroy the positions of incumbents. We probably shouldn't care very much whether large companies are able to do it themselves or whether another large company from another industry does it or whether it's a small startup or an entrepreneur. The important thing is the rate of acceleration of this whole process. That's what we need to ramp up in whatever form it takes. I spoke to Hart about the bottom of the pyramid or BOP model for doing business with the poor. In response to criticisms of the model, such as that it simply turns developing country populations into environmentally destructive consumers rather than lifting them out of poverty or introducing sustainable solutions, Hart talked excitedly about the evolving BOP 2.0 concept. That's why the confluence of this idea of disruptive clean technology or green technology innovation at the base of the pyramid is so important. I refer to it as the Great Convergence, he said. It's almost like there are these two worlds, Hart explained. There is the clean tech world with people who have been very tech-focused, very North American or West European, very environmental, but haven't really looked at developing country issues or poverty or imaginative commercialization strategies. But then there are the BOP people who are much more business model oriented, distribution oriented, with a focus on poverty alleviation, but they haven't thought much about the environment. And so the real challenge becomes, how do we begin to converge those two agendas in a fundamental way? Stuart Hart, together with Ted London, has now pulled together this BOP 2.0 thinking in a book called Next Generation Strategies for the Base of the Pyramid. He told me that the key to this new way of doing business is co-creation. You have to change your mindset and think, we could be partners and colleagues. We could work together to develop a business that combines the best of both. We could bring incredible next generation clean technology but there's a lot of local knowledge. And if we combine those two, imagine what sort of interesting business we could create that could make a better way to live. 
our common wealth. Another person I interviewed and who shares a similar upbeat view of our potential to solve the problems we face is Jeffrey Sachs, author of The End of Poverty and Common Wealth. He began by declaring that contrary to popular opinion, if you take the big picture of development, it's been a resounding success against any backdrop of longer human history. Elaborating, he said, for the vast proportion of human history, societies were economically stagnant and the overwhelming majority was living at the edge of survival. And during the last 50 years, almost all the world has gotten off the edge of survival and some quite far from the edge into at least middle income, if not high income status. That counts in my view, he said, because that's longevity, that's children not dying in infancy or in childhood, it's healthier lives, it's greater opportunities, so it's worth accomplishing. Now the irony is that about a sixth of the world's population is still stuck in extreme poverty, but with the tools to end that poverty at hand. We have the makings of the completion of what has been a very broad success of economic development, bringing it to those remaining parts of the world that have not yet experienced the sustained economic takeoff. It can be accomplished. Sachs is less optimistic than Hart about the role of business in solving the poverty dilemma. I love markets where they work, he says, but I spend a tremendous amount of time also emphasizing that markets don't work for everything. For cell phones, yes, you may be able to reach 40% penetration in Africa, and it's phenomenal, it's world-changing. But 40% penetration for immunizations won't do it. You might say that's a great success on a market basis, but if you leave 60% of the population unimmunized, you've got epidemics and mass death. The same thing applies with bed nets. Of course, we could sell bed nets to 25% of the population, but you will not control malaria that way. So we've got to get the model right. Business has scalability, information and management systems, and it holds the technology. But if there's no market at the end for the public good that we need, then at a minimum, we need a public-private partnership where business does what it does, but government makes the market or provides the financing to get the job done. In a futile attempt to dampen Sachs's optimism, I pointed out the unsustainability of Western lifestyles, which this rapidly emerging developing world is clambering to replicate. Sachs conceded that if we're not sustainable now, how would we be if the world economy were not 70 trillion but 280 trillion because everyone's caught up? The answer is impossible. He sees two contrasting views on the dilemma. One, that development has to stop. In other words, the rich have to become poorer so that the poorer can catch up. And two, that we have to make a global transition to sustainable technologies. That's where I put my cards and my bet, Sachs told me, that there are technologies that can do this. But I've argued in Commonwealth that you can't leave technological transformation to market forces alone. Of course markets play a role, but technology is also a public good. 
With the environmental challenges, we have two market failures. One is the mismanagement of the commons, like greenhouse gases, what Nick Stern has called the greatest market failure in world history. And the second is the management of technological change, which I would argue, because of the public good's nature of knowledge, is itself intrinsically a public-private policy challenge. It can't be left to the markets alone. So I think we have those two transitions, said Sachs. Manage the commons and manage knowledge and technology transformation. Clearly and happily, I had failed to dampen Sachs's indomitable spirit, and he concluded by declaring, Every time I turn around, whether it's in India, whether it's in China and Malaysia, Tanzania, there's no shortage of reasons for optimism. What is the hardest part of all is managing change and having the understanding of how crucial and how fruitful cooperation can be right now. The problem isn't our lack of tools. The problem is our ability to manage all these wonderfully powerful tools that we have to a human effect. We have a challenge of management and understanding, of learning and cooperation. We're going to solve these problems. Extreme poverty will end by the year 2025. That's what I said in the end of poverty, and I think that's what's going to happen.